Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 22. I think I forgot to introduce myself. Uh, my name is Jason Averill. I'm the assistant pastor here at Grace. It's a pleasure to preach to you. Uh, we had kind of uh, a little last-minute change, like I said. Uh, I'm filling in for Wilson, and since I preached last week um, on justification, Wilson and I thought that we would do kind of an impromptu sermon series change. And so we have a mini-series uh, for three weeks, starting with justification last week. Today we're going to be doing effectual calling and next week, we're going to be doing the doctrine of regeneration. And we're going to see as we progress how all of these major doctrines are just intertwined together, that you can't separate them. They build on each other, and uh, that is a good and awesome truth that is given to us for our good. So, uh, like I said, we are in Matthew chapter 22. We're going to be doing uh, verses 1 through 14. Uh, I will read the scriptures. Please stand as we read. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell us who are, <clears throat> tell those who are invited, see, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready, come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention, and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them. The king was angry. And he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But... When the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. All men are like grass, and all their glories are like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. And God's word stands forever. Let's turn our attention to it. Please be seated. So, before we start in, let me pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for calling us here today. We thank you uh, for the privilege of turning to your word and finding in it true sustenance. Lord, as we turn to the sermon, as we learn about your calling to us and our election, use it, Lord, to draw us closer to you and to bolster our trust in our Savior. Holy Spirit, convict us where we need conviction and bring us comfort and the balm of your presence uh, when we need comfort. 
it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this passage that we just read, it, it actually takes place during Holy Week. So, Holy Week starts out with Palm Sunday, and that's that uh, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's the culmination of his three years of ministry. He is now going into Jerusalem as the king. And then Sunday ends, Monday rolls around, and we have this cleansing of the temple where Jesus, in his zeal for God and his word, he overturns the tables of the money changers and he forms a, a whip of cords and he drives the money changers out of the temple. And then Tuesday rolls around and he begins teaching. And he starts teaching in the temple and one of the first things that happens as he begins teaching is that his authority is challenged. The Pharisees don't like that he's teaching. They don't like him. They, they really don't want to arrest him yet because they fear the people, but they cannot stand what he's been saying and how he's been teaching. And so they challenge his authority. And Jesus responds to them with a series of three parables. He, he tells a parable about two sons, a parable about uh, tenants that were unjust and killed uh, the servants that he sent to them. And then he also tells this parable, the parable of the wedding feast. And each parable kind of addresses this same question, and it's this question of how is it that we respond to God? And in, in that first parable, we see the tale of the two sons. One son, the father goes to him and says, hey, go out to the field and do your work. And the son says, no. But then later changes his mind and goes out to the field, whereas the next son says yes, but then doesn't do it. And so it's analyzing that response and comparing the Pharisees to those two sons. And then the parable of the tenants. We have one set of tenants that's wicked that uh, God puts in the land, and then since they are wicked and they want to, to hoard the produce to themselves, Whenever he sends servants to them, they end up killing the servants, trying to steal the inheritance. And so he asked the Pharisees, what do you think is going to happen? And the Pharisees respond very truthfully, and they say, that, uh, those tenants will be put to death, and the farm is actually going to be leased to somebody else. And it, it, it expands what that <clears throat> the answer to that question from the first parable and here in the parable of the wedding feast we get a further deepening a further expansion of the response to that question how do we respond to god and we ask the same question today how is it that we're to respond to god why do we respond to god why are some people saved and others aren't why do some people come and some people stay away? Why do some people long to stay in their rebellion? And so we're going to be looking today at how Jesus answers these questions in this parable. And this parable beautifully illustrates that doctrine I was talking about at the beginning, this doctrine of effectual calling and how it kind of joins together and is undergirded by the doctrine of election. And those are big theological words, and I know they're scary, and you might think they're dry, but they're not. They're an incredibly, inc 
incredibly important, and they give us so much comfort. So we're going to be looking at how Jesus answers this in three ways. We're going to be looking at uh, the general call that goes out to everybody. We're going to be looking at the effectual call and what that is, and we're going to be looking at how election itself upholds the effectual call. So let's look here at the general, <clears throat> the general call. This is verse 1 through 3. It says, And again Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So weddings were kind of a big deal back then. They're, I mean, they're a big deal today. They are. People spend thousands upon thousands of dollars on weddings. They are a huge deal, but they were an even bigger deal back, back in the New Testament times. They were bigger. They were grander. The celebration wouldn't just be for a night. It wouldn't just be for a day. Oftentimes, it would be over the course of several days, maybe even a week. And just like today, in order uh, to get people there, what do you do? You send out invites. And so those invitations had gone out. All the, the king sent his servants to all of his friends and said, I'm having a wedding feast for my son. Will you come? And the custom at this point was when you receive the invitation, you immediately RSVP. You tell the servant whether or not you're going to come because, one, it's not just you. It's, it's you and your family that's coming. Two, like, just like today, the person who's hosting has to make sure that they have enough food. They have to make sure they have enough wine. They have to make sure that they have entertainment for everybody. And unlike today, though, you know, if somebody shows up unannounced, you know, you couldn't just send somebody to the store to buy more ice cream or more wine. You couldn't just send uh, out to the caterer and tell them to prepare another meal. No, everything had to be ready ahead of time. There was a lot of preparation that went into it. It took weeks to assemble everything. And so if you said you were going to be there, if you RSVP'd, you were going to be there. It was a huge imposition if you weren't, and a huge cultural slight. And so finally, everything is ready, and that's where we enter this parable. Everything is ready for the wedding feast, and so he sends his servants out to tell people, because that's what you would do. You didn't have telephones, you know, you didn't really have courier services. You had your servants, and you would go, and you would send them, and you would say, hey, everything's ready. We have everything we need. Let's go ahead and hold this wedding. And so he does that. He sends out his servants, tells everybody to come, everybody that had RSVP'd, and no one comes, not a single person. No one comes. And so he sends his servants out again, and we read in verse 4, Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. 
But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants and treated them shamefully and killed them. He says, I, I've spent all this money. I've spent all this time. I've gathered all these resources. The party's ready. Please come. But again, he was ignored. And not even really ignored for a good reason. We're, we're not told what the reason is here, but if there's a similar parable told in Luke. And Jesus told this at a, a, di a different time, but it, it is the same parable. And this is the reason that the people in Luke give. This is Luke chapter 14. And it's verse 18. He says, But they all began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. He has to go and see his field. The field evidently isn't going to be there tomorrow. He can't come now. The next one says, I bought five yokes of oxen, and I go to examine them. Please have me excused. The oxen aren't going to be there tomorrow. It's not like you've already purchased them. You've already paid for them. No. Another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. He doesn't give a reason beyond that. Why can't he bring his wife to the wedding? No. These aren't good excuses. They're very bad excuses. Very bad excuses. And then, aside from this huge faux pas of just not showing up, some of the people that he invite actually take his servants hostage and kill them. So, in the Middle East... Especially at this time, you know, if you slighted somebody in this way, I mean, it was a deep wound. And if you were a king and someone slighted you in this way, you very well might declare war on them, which he does. It's a huge, huge slight. It goes beyond just a faux pas. No. It's clear that they were intentionally doing this. They were rebelling against their king. And that rebellion kind of makes sense of verse 7 where it says that he sends out his troops and he goes and he kills them all and destroys their town. It's an understandable reaction that a king would have against rebelling against him in this way. So that's what's going on in the parable. But as all parables have, there's this deeper meaning, this deeper layer that is underneath. And Jesus here, he's looking at the Pharisees He's pointing at them, and he's saying, just like in those first two parables I mentioned, he's saying, this is you. The Father and I sent out all the invites. This is you. You've refused to come. I prepared this wedding feast. You refused to come. Not only that, the Father has sent servants to you. He sent prophets. He sent John the Baptist. He even sent me. And you've treated us all shamefully. And some of us you've killed. And of course, he's thinking about his own death at this point, too. How could this be? How could no one come? Surely, surely somebody who's saved, there's somebody who is saved. Somebody's come in. You know, there were the prophets. There were the servants that were there that were actually sent out. 
So how can he say that no one came? Well, again, this is a parable, and Jesus is drawing us into a deeper truth here. He's not saying that none of the Pharisees have ever come, that nobody has ever been saved. He says here, in this deeper way, that when the general call goes out, when that gospel call goes out to the world, no one responds. Ever. No one responds to that. That gospel call is insufficient for salvation. In fact, you could even go so far to say that the gospel call goes out to the entirety of the world and across the entirety of the world and the entirety of history. No one has ever responded to that gospel call. No one has ever come to the wedding feast. Sin has done its work. We have hearts of stone, not hearts of flesh. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are... Uh, lusting after the flesh, we are unable to please God and we are at enmity with him. We are in rebellion. And we're not able to respond to God. Jesus actually says it this way in the Gospel of John. It's chapter 6, verse 44. He says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. It's touching the same note. Nobody can come to Jesus unless God has already been at work. John 10, he goes into this just a, a little bit more fuller in another con <clears throat> confrontation with the Pharisees. It's 10, starting in verse 24, he says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. They can't believe because they are not part of Jesus' flock. And so, that's the deeper truth that he's highlighting. It is a picture of the Pharisees, but it's also a picture of mankind in general. This is our state. What the Westminster Confession says is our estate of sin and misery. Completely estranged from God. So the question then becomes, so if no one can respond, how does anyone end up coming? Well, let's read verses 8 through 10. So, verse 8. Then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready. But those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. And so everything in this parable right now is just kind of over the top. It's unheard of. It is unheard of that a king would throw a wedding feast and people wouldn't show up. It's unheard of that your king would throw a wedding feast for his son and that you would try to back out the last minute. No, you would always try to be there. And yet, that's the picture that he's showing us. He also shows, excuse me, I have a really dry throat today. So I apologize for all the water that I'm guzzling. Um, no, nobody shows up, but the king also wouldn't try to pad his attendance by 
going out and just trying to get the hoi polloi to come. He wouldn't go to the ne'er-do-wells and say, hey, I need to shore up my guest list. Come on. No. He might, in an act of charity, if this very improbable situation happens, give away the food that he cooked rather than let it spoil. But he wouldn't have the feast. But this king, this king in this parable, his son is getting married. His son is getting married, and he will have people in attendance. And so Jesus, again here, layers his meaning. He's saying to the Pharisees, you know, you've been invited, but you refuse to come. And because of that, both you and Jerusalem are going to end up being destroyed. That's going to happen. But just like the parable of the vineyard in the previous uh, parable, the parable of the tenants, and the, that lease was given to a different set of tenants afterwards. It's going out to other people. And that's what he's highlighting here. And in particular, it's going out to people that the Pharisees despise. They think they're better than them. They won't even associate them. These are people that Jesus is saying, you should be ministering to these people. You should be calling them to repentance. You should be leading them to God. But no, no, you won't do that. And so the invites, they're going out to the sinners and the tax collectors, and yes, even to the Gentiles. He's telling the Pharisees, just like he did before, that the sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles are going to enter the kingdom of heaven before the Pharisees will, instead of the Pharisees. And he's drawing their attention to that fact that while they think they are on solid ground, they think they're on good ground. They think they're bearing fruit. They are actually in rebellion against God. But I, I hear you say, Jason, you just said that nobody ever responds to the gospel call. No, nobody ever responds to this general call that goes out. How is it that it's going to be any different with this next group of people? Why do they come? Well, Jesus again layers the meaning in this parable. He's drawing attention to this deeper truth. Why do people come? Let's go back to the text and read. He says, sorry. He says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you can find. And those servants went into the roads and gathered all whom they found. They gathered them. This isn't just a call. This isn't just an invite that's going out. The servants are actually actively going out and pulling people in. It's made much more explicit in Luke's version of this parable. This is Luke, again, chapter 14. He says, And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. He uses much stronger language. It's not even just gathering people. It is compelling them, dragging them in. And this is a picture, like I said, of the effectual call. People don't come 
because their hearts are stone. The servants don't stop at the invite because the invite is not enough and they know that. No, there has to be an effectual call. There has to be something that changes in them. So what is effectual calling? The Shorter Catechism says it this way. It says, effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. And all the elements there are important. You know, that's long and convoluted, and so I'll, I'll break it down for you, but everything there is important. He's convincing us of our sin and misery. That's the first step of the effectual call that the Holy Spirit goes out and convinces you that you are a sinner in need of grace. The Pharisees, in comparison, don't think they're sinners. Again, going to Luke chapter 18, the Pharisee and the tax collector, the tax collector goes away justified because he is beating his breast, asking God to save him, and the tax collector simply prays, thank you for not making me be like this guy because he sees the other guy as a sinner and he doesn't see himself as a sinner. Enlightening our minds to the knowledge of Christ. That means telling us in a deep way that Christ has actually come to save us. Telling us that Christ has come and lived the perfect life and died a death so that we might taste salvation. But even that's not enough. Even that understanding isn't enough because it doesn't deal with the heart. And so it goes on to the work of regeneration, the renewing of our wills. And we'll get more into regeneration next week and kind of explore and delve into what that means. But in its essence, it is the removing of the heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh so that you can actually respond to the gospel call. Not only that, he persuades and enables you and does it in such a sweet manner that it feels like you are the one that is taking the initiative. Though the only reason why you can do that is because he's given you a new heart. And all of this is so that you can embrace Jesus Christ as he is offered to you in the gospel as a savior. So that's why these people respond. That's why these people can respond. They've been given a new heart. And as certain as it was that they would reject the gospel call when it came to them as an unregenerate, unregenerate person, now that it comes to them as a regenerate person, it is just as certain that they will accept that call. Because the Lord has renewed their wills. And the parable, you know, it seems like it could really end there. In fact, Luke's, <laughs> Luke's uh, version of the parable does end there. It doesn't go on. Um, but Jesus keeps it going. So let's read verses 11 through 13. Jesus says this, But when the king came in to look at the wedding at the guests, he saw that there was a man who had no wedding garments. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And then the king said to his attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place 
there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know, it, it seems like, you know, this, the picture is this king, he's going out into this feast hall, and he's surveying all the people who have come in order to celebrate the wedding of his son, and he's looking out, and all he sees are these blinding white garments, these festal robes that people would wear in order to celebrate a wedding. And then he sees one guy. He sees one guy who isn't actually dressed like any of the others. No, instead, he's dressed inappropriately. He wasn't dressed upright. You know, and if you showed up in that culture to a wedding and you weren't dressed right, if you were dressed improperly, if you weren't wearing those nice robes, that was, again, a big slight against the host. You're saying that this event wasn't important. You were saying that he wasn't important. No. And so he goes to the man and he confronts him. He says, how did you get in here without, without a robe? And the man is speechless. He's unable to give an excuse. And, you know, this might be an indication a little bit. We don't know how any of these people got their robes. We're not told that by Jesus here. Uh, but, you know, these are people that came in from the highways and byways. You know, they, they didn't have time to go home to dress properly, even if they had the garments that they needed. And so really the only conclusion is that they were provided the garments by the king. And indeed, that, that links up with our sermon from last week on Zechariah 3 where we see the high priest Joshua standing before God in his filthy garments and that he's stripped from them. And then he's reclothed in the righteousness of Christ, pure white vestments. That same thing seems to be happen happening here. They've been provided their wedding clothes. And so the question is, how did this man come in? You know, he's cast out of the feast because he's not dressed properly. What is Jesus saying here? Is he, is he saying that people who are called effectually, is he saying that they can actually be cast out? That they can be excluded from the wedding feast and sent to hell? No. No. He's not saying that. Not at all. Again, there's another layer of meaning here. Everyone who came to the feast, who came properly, received three things. They received the invite, the gospel call. And the Holy Spirit went to them and gathered them up and compelled them to come, gave them a new heart. And because of that, they've been given a righteousness that isn't their own. They've been given the wedding garments that they need. That's everything that they've been given. Everyone who receives the effectual call receives the general call and the proper attire to attend that wedding feast. They receive Jesus' righteousness. And this guy shows up, and we don't really know where he came from. He's not dressed right. And if he's not dressed right, that means that he wasn't dressed by the king. And it really looks more, uh, less like he's a guest and more like he's a party crasher. You know, and Jesus is saying here, listen, just because you are in the gathering of God's people, 
just because you grew up in church, just because you attend church regularly, that's not enough. It's not enough that you've been baptized. It's not enough to know your Bible really well. You have to be dressed in my righteousness. There is no other way for you to stand in my wedding feast. He makes the same point in John chapter 10, verse 1. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door climbs in by another way. That man is a thief and a robber. You know, everybody in the sheepfold, that's part of Jesus' flock. And he says that anybody who comes in that doesn't come in through Jesus is not part of his flock. He's a thief and a robber. He's not fit to be there. It's that same point. Just being in the room isn't enough. No. And again, the parable could end there. We have enough. But again, Jesus chooses not to end it there. He ends it with this odd passage, this odd saying. He says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. You know, that word that we translate as chosen, we also translate that as elect, as in the election of God's people. It's the same word. And so what does that mean? What does election mean? Jesus obviously wants us to connect this call that's been given to us with our election. So what does election mean? Election is God choosing to save us from the estate of sin and misery and transfer us into the estate of grace and salvation. All because of the work of his son. And the image is one that everybody is dead in their trespasses and sins. Nobody on the face of the planet is going to heaven. Everyone is bound to hell. Every single person. And God comes in before the foundation of the world, knowing how everything is going to play out. And he chooses some people and elects them to salvation. He chooses some people to provide that gospel call to, that effectual call. And so, why? Why does he do this? You know, that, that's, that's the question many people have. Why does God choose to elect some people? Well, because without his election, without his decision, without his choice... Nobody would be saved. He chooses to save people. Romans 8 says this. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is known as the golden chain of salvation. And it starts with God electing people, with his predestining them to be conformed to the image of his son. Why does it have to be this way? Because if the effectual call actually goes out to you, if your heart is renewed and regenerated, just like I said before, if before you are bound to reject the gospel call, 
when God has actually been at work in your heart, you are bound to respond because he has changed your heart. The Westminster Confession of Faith says this. This is chapter 3, verse 6. It's the chapter on God's eternal decree, but it is so sweet and amazing. I just had to include it here. It says, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to use the haths and the duts because, I don't know, it's old-fashioned. I like that language. As God hath appointed the elect unto glory, so hath he, by the eternal and most free purpose of his will, foreordained all the means thereunto. That means that just as he has elected some people for salvation and glory, he provides all the means for them to actually be saved. Wherefore, they who are elected, being fallen in Adam, are redeemed in Christ, are effectually called unto faith in Christ by his Spirit, working in due season. In, they are justified, adopted, sanctified, and kept in his power through faith unto salvation. Neither are any other redeemed by Christ, effectually called, justified, adopted, sanctified, and saved, but the elect only. Because like I said before, these doctrines, the doctrines of grace, they hold together. They wind around each other. They stand and they fall together. And so if one is true, then the others are true. If one is false, then they're all false. And so all mankind was perishing in their sin and in their misery and God elected some to be saved and God's not being unfair here because everybody had sinned everybody was under the curse he is being merciful and generous and gracious by saving some people so that's the doctrine of election why is this important you know what's the purpose behind the doctrines of effectual calling the doctrine of election well, first off, it's a warning. That's how it's used against the Pharisees. It's a warning. It's a warning against hearing his voice and hardening your hearts. Hebrews chapter 3 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any in you and e <clears throat> be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God, but exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as in the rebellion. For those who, who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not those who left Egypt and left by Moses? And they died. And Jesus is saying, do not follow their example. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear his voice speaking to you, pray. Do not let the deceitfulness of sin, do not let your infatuation with your own righteousness get in the way. Make your calling and election sure, as Peter says. He's not saying that you can affect your election he's not saying that what he's saying is that if you are elect you need to make sure 
for yourself. Assure yourself because of God's promises that you are elect. Do not become complacent. That's the that's the kind of the first the first use. But that's not the last. You know, we are to make our calling and election sure because we're supposed to keep our eyes on Jesus. We're supposed to keep our eyes on our Savior. We're supposed to trust in His righteousness, not in our own. And we are to be in everything, not presumptuous like the Pharisees. Not taking for granted that we are saved simply because we are in church. But instead, trusting in Christ's righteousness. But, you know, as important as that warning is, and it is important, there's another and much better reason for the doctrine. And that's for our comfort. Again, I rely on the confession here. This is chapter 3, verse 8. The doctrine of this high mystery is to be handled with special prudence and care that men attending to the will of God revealed in his word and yielding obedience thereunto may, from the certainty of their effectual vocation, be assured of their eternal election. So shall this doctrine afford matter of praise and reverence and admiration of God, of humility, diligence, and abundant consolation to all that sincerely obey the gospel. It's given to us to move us to praise, to move us to worship. It's given to us to assure us that we are safe in the Redeemer's hands, that there is nothing that can happen to us. If we are elected, if we are called, if we hear Christ's voice, we are safe. Nobody can snatch us away from Jesus. If we go back to John chapter 10, that's how he follows up those other verses. He says to the Pharisees, you don't hear my voice because you're not part of my sheep. You don't believe me because you're not part of my sheep. And he goes on to say, my sheep hear my voice, and they come when I call, and nobody can snatch them out of my hand. My Father is greater than all. He has given them to me. Nobody can snatch them out of the Father's hand. No sin you ever commit, no sin you ever commit will mar that security that you have with him. Because your trust is in Christ's righteousness, not yours. Indeed, Paul, right after this section in Romans that we read, the golden chain of salvation, he's moved to this jubilant response to that. And he says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No. This is supposed to give us comfort. It's supposed to give us a jubilation that we are saved and safe. And far from making us complacent as Christians. No. This moves us to rejoice. Dear Christian, if, if you know Jesus, if you trust in him, and in his righteousness. Know for certain, for certain, that you have been effectually called by him. He has worked that in your heart. 
And if you have been called, it is because he chose you before the foundation of the world for salvation. Know that and rejoice in that. Feel the safety in that. You are secure. You are clothed in Jesus' perfect, spotless record. And you are welcome, more than welcome, at the feast of God. Let us pray. Father, Lord, it's always a little bit too much how gracious you are with us, that we, by our nature, dead in our trespasses and sins, dead in our rebellion against you, that you, Lord, have not let that stand, but instead you have made us alive in Christ. You have given us hearts of flesh that we might worship you respond to you, trust in you, and love you. Lord, we ask that these wonderful doctrines of grace that you've given us, that we treasure them in our hearts and help, <clears throat> help us see Jesus and his work for us, his love for us better every day because of it.